Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real, authentic dialogue, you are in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. We have a spectacular episode today with two of my favorite people, two of my favorite people in the tech industry, guys I've known for a very long time, who've been leaders for a very long time. Uh, today we have John Seifert and Bob Evans, the leaders and founders of Acceleration Economy, which is a new model of analyst firm that rather than using um, uh, sort of traditional analysts, they've put together a network of been there, done that guys. And so it's a completely different thing. In addition, Bob Evans, uh, he was the chief ding dong of all content at Information Week back in the day. And John was a big ding dong executive back at Information Week back in the day when Information Week mattered. Um, I'm not even sure if it's still around. I should probably ask him. (laughs) Anyway, Bob um, is the host of a podcast called Cloud Wars Live. And it's one of my favorites where uh, a lot of industries get together to talk about what's going in the cloud, uh, what's going on in the cloud, what's going on in tech, and what's going on in the world. And um, I've been uh, honored to be a regular guest on Cloud Wars Live many times uh, on a regular basis. And we've even dropped, I'm not exactly sure how many, one or two episodes of Cloud Wars Live um, into the Follow Your Different feed. That's how much I think of Bob and the conversations that I get to have with him. On this conversation, we get into everything from DEI to AI and beyond. If you want a great perspective on where business and technology is now and where it's going in 2024, you are in the right place. Now, to thrive today, legendary marketing leaders and creators are using content, courses, and community, what you might call creator capital, to design and dominate new categories. And if you want to do that, you need a mighty network. You see, on a mighty network, you can bring together your community memberships, online courses, webinars, special events, all in one place under your brand on a platform that you control. You own this. This is not something, this is not liquefaction like LinkedIn or Twitter or any other social media platform that you might build part of your business on that when they change their algorithm or because of their uh, policies of one sort or another, you might get it up the hoo-hoo from them. And when you do, it's horrible. On Mighty Networks, you're in control. It's your network. It's your brand. And Mighty Networks has a powerful mobile app that allows you to create mobile branded apps of your Mighty Network. As a matter of fact, at Category Pirates, we use Mighty for the Category Design Academy, where we teach people how to get a black belt in category design. So if you want to design and dominate your category, mobilize your community, and drive new growth, visit my friends at MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. Here's John, and here's Bob. Hey ho, let's go. All right, gentlemen. Well, um, did we learn anything in 2023? Uh, well, 
I think we we might have gotten a little dumber in 2023 a few times. I don't uh, I don't know how much we learned though from it, Chris. Did you hear? And I won't name names because I don't want to upset anybody particular. Um, but there was one of the Republican debates where uh, a certain candidate said something, and a certain other candidate said to the first candidate, "Every time he speaks, I feel a little dumber." <laughs> uh, I thought I thought it was a funny line, regardless of whose candidate you like. It was a very funny line. Oh, it is. Um, I think there were some wild lessons learned uh, this year that we certainly did some dumb things here and there. But you know, I can't get away in in some respects from the uh, what happened at OpenAI. Right? It's you know, like not that they said to Sam Altman, "Hey, we don't want to," you know. Uh, re-up you with as many shares you got last year because we have to spread them around, you know, or we'd like you to read when you travel, uh, don't, don't spend $500 on a meal, spend 400, you know, something really stupid. <laughs> they, they just, they were <laughs> not just annoying. They were going to fire them. Uh, and there had to be more than one of these nimwits that did that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder, Chris, you did a great podcast recently where you talked about a lot of this and what got into it and the rot that the intellectual and moral rot that sits down underneath that, that percolates up. So I think 2024, people are going to look at that. I hope we all learn some things from that. I mean, big lessons, not, not little ones. And guys, I got to say one other thing that came up here is, and I, I wrote about this a lot, talked about it a lot over the last several months, but um, I am just astounded. In 2024, uh, Larry Ellison will turn 80 years old, and I don't think he's ever been more animated, more involved, more pumped up, more excited. And that thing of him turning Microsoft from one of Oracle's <laughs> most bitter rivals into their biggest customer in the cloud, uh, where cloud and AI, Microsoft's pretty good at some of that stuff, but they're paying Oracle a whole lot of money to do this. So what did the, you know, 80 year old guy who's also doing tennis and sailboat racing and restaurants and, uh, new wave agriculture and medical research. He owns a Hawaiian Island. Yeah. He's doing all that stuff out there. But he was sort of seeing around the corner over the horizon, whatever you want to call it enough to say, you know what? What got us here isn't going to get us there, and he just uh, he just did some astounding things. So we need to be more alert toward blatant stupidity grounded in uh, some sort of false, uh, whatever the right term is, morality, political correctness, and we need to get back to some of these things for people who've uh, shown the way that they can achieve and they've really done stuff. They haven't talked about it. They've done it over and over and over and over again. And this notion about, well, you know, the new generation needs to take hold of everything and the new generation, it's, there's a lot of brilliance and a lot of wonderful things from every age and every part of the spectrum. And I just hope, uh, I hope we all learn some stuff from those two examples. Amen, Bob. Um, the other interesting thing about, well, there's lots of interesting things about the open AI debacle, but the, one of the people on the board, and I, I won't name the names of the unspeakable, said that firing Sam would be executing on the company's mission. <laughs> yeah. 
And so <laughs> I think there's an aha here. I think, and I I really appreciate um, Claudine Gay and her sisterhood of evil for the incredible. I mean, I just I got the best Harvard education you can have. Yeah. And um, did you guys see the uh, the video that James O'Keefe put out of, of the Zoom with the IBM CEO and the Red Hat CEO? Did you see that thing? Yep. Did you see that, John? I did not see that one, Christopher. Oh, fuck. So I'll send it to you. But here's, the, here's if you watch the video, it is shocking. They're basically doing a DEI review. And the CEO of IBM is crushing the CEO of Red Hat. Because he's not hitting his DEI numbers. Mm. And he explains to him multiple times in the video, in the Zoom, that he is not going to get his full bonus unless he hits his DEI numbers. And then the CEO of Red Hat, first of all, I have, I, I've been doing this a long time, 37 years to be exact. I don't ever remember seeing a CEO of a serious company grovel like this. I mean... He was groveling and ass-kicking, ass-kissing, not kicking, ass-kissing. Anyway, he says, yeah, little boss, you know, we, we even fired a bunch of executives this year who weren't on board with the DEI, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And he's like, so and now, and now over 100 whistleblowers have come out. No. So I think between Penn, MIT, and Harvard, and now IBM, and now documents have come out of IBM. I don't know if you've seen any of the documents about how everything that the oppressed uh, groups do and say is good and everything that white people say is terrible. I mean, it, the, the, it's incredible. I'll send all of it to you. It's a shocker. And so here's the aha. I predict, and I want to bounce this off you, that we're at the beginning of the end of DEI. And that what we're going to see now are massive lawsuits against Harvard. MIT, Penn, and all the others. And there are going to be, mark my words, gigantic class action lawsuits against IBM. And here's the thing. When that IBM, when James O'Keefe exposed that shit, the number of people who came out and said, this crap's been going on in my company for over a decade. Mm -hmm. So I have a prediction for 2024, which is we are going to see massive uh, DEI lawsuits, and it's going to cost these companies billions and billions of dollars. A lot of these CEOs are going to lose their jobs because what they're doing is firing the quote-unquote oppressors to make room for the oppressed. That's what they're doing. They have quotas. It's in our laws in California. And so DEI has been exposed uh, Silicon Valley, um, I mean, John, you've lived here pretty much your whole life, right? I mean, this part yes, of the sir. world is ground zero for this DEI evil. And um, I think the beginning of the end starts now. I'm curious what you guys think. So I'd throw out a couple of things, Christopher and, and Bob. I know you've got some some really good thoughts on this stuff, too. But, uh, you know, the first thing is, I think... Uh, this this is one of the reasons why I said I think we got a little bit stupider in 2023, right? As uh, based on some of these realities, um, but if you take a step back and you actually consider the words, right? Uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, Christopher, you've made some some great thoughts on making sure we understand the difference between equity and equality, right? Because they mean two entirely different things. Uh, but 
the words themselves are important words, right? Diversity is a great freaking word, right? The, the more diverse environments that we are all in, the better. Diverse with people, diverse with, um, uh, uh, with race, diverse with sec- sexual orientation, diverse in age, right? All those th- sorts of things are, are so freaking important for us as individuals to get smarter, to learn from each other, to understand each other's cultures and that sort of thing. Because if you're in those diverse environments, you then find that intelligence gets decentralized, right? Instead of it being just centralized in a group, right? Uh, it gets decentralized across individuals that then make up different groups. And then you start to have a lacking of a need for groups if you all understand each other and you have this this mindset, right? That's one of the big things. I think we've lost some of that premise in uh, in the you know political movements and legal movements that have gone on around DEI. Um, the other word I love is inclusion, right? Who likes to be excluded? Nobody, right? People love to be included. Uh, inclusion should mean that you have that intelligence of the other people because you've been around them and you understand why why their diversity is why why them being diverse is good for you. Right. Uh, and then you want to talk to them more. Right. Which is the premise of inclusion uh, and driving those things. We've turned it into a grandstanding political um, uh, quagmire that uh, that is now forcing these conversations that you'll shoot over to me between uh, the folks at IBM and, and those sorts of things. And, yeah, we we know about the stuff at Harvard and we, we know these sorts of things. That, uh, that have been all over the news and all that sort of stuff. And it just bums me out, man, because if we just look at how important these words really are and we practice them as opposed to trying to put uh, ramifications around them legally and all this sort of stuff, I think we'd be in a little bit better shape. I agree with you. Um, and diversity and inclusion sit beautifully next to equality. And um, as evil as Equity is versus equality. The one positive word or the in the phrase or change of word in the phrase DEI, I never liked uh, John tolerance. <laughs> tolerance? The fuck are you talking about? Oh, we have to have more tolerance for fill in the blank. Tolerance. Inclusion is a radical upgrade over tolerance. Yeah. Now equity is a horrible downgrade and they mean it. They mean equity of outcome. They mean socialism. That's what they fucking mean. And that is illegal. And that is radically anti-American. What is radically legal and radically American is radical inclusion. Yeah. Well, I, I gotta say, I'm with you guys on this sort of spirit of this thing, but the whole inclusion thing, right? it brings with it its ugly cousin of exclusion. And uh, I think that the whole thing just got very in the hands of either some idiots or some evil people just turned around to say, okay, we'll turn this thing on its head. So I, I certainly agree with the broad premise each of you are saying. It's like when you try to codify these things and ram them down people's throat like, well, in uh, how many people of each color are there in this country, in this country, in this country? So we have to have our employee base mirror those. Is that right? You know, is, is that what we want to do? And then the, the power that some of these 
adversity officers have and the corresponding weakness of some leaders in these companies that just sort of go on with it and go on with it and go along with it and that dilutes their product and you see it in the marketplace. They say, yeah, we had a we had a tough year financially. We lost a lot of money. Our stock price got cut in half, but hey, by the nature of you know, whoever these people are who set the rules for what inclusion means, we, we scored real well on that. But we screwed our customers and our employees and our shareholders and the future of this company. But uh, so that yeah, I I I, I think your upgrade, Christopher's right to that word. But it's still well. Here's where in my mind where it gets where it gets evil is quotas. Yeah, where it gets radically evil, and you see this in the IBM video where the IBM CEO says that IBM's employee base should be identical to the population in the United States vis-a-vis distribution of groups. So he fucking says it. He says we should be 50% women. He says we should be, I think in America, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know different, I think black people are 13 or 16%, somewhere in that number, whatever the number is, he says that. And then he's an Indian dude, an Asian dude. And he says, Asians are overrepresented in tech and therefore we don't need more Asians. He fucking says it. <laughs> he fucking says it. So these DEI, uh, this DEI evil is very, very upfront about its illegal anti-American racism. Very, very upfront. So there's, uh, th- this is the, th- this is the reason why the equations don't work, right? When you when you try to say, "Hey, we've got to map it to uh, uh, how many percentage of each ethnicity there is in in a geography," right? That is uh, that's a crap idea, right? And I and I understand the point of uh, of wanting things to look like the melting pot that America is, right? That's a that that's cool, right? You know, it's it's a cool idea, um, but the premise is the best people, no matter what their um, uh, uh, you know, ethnicity is and those sorts of things should be the ones building the plane, should be the ones building the rocket, should be the ones, uh, you know, uh, uh, architecting the building, right? Or whatever it is. Now, should you have a level of awareness that, uh, hey, there's there's all kinds of different people out there that don't look just like me, whoever me is in that scenario. Yeah, sure. You you, you always want to have that awareness, right? That's the beauty of diversity. That's the beauty of this reality. Um, but when you look up the definition of equity in the in the dictionary, right? There's two different there's two different uh, definitions. The quality of being fair and impartial uh, is number one, right? Now. Last time I checked, fair and impartial is a good way to live your life and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But fair and impartial doesn't mean you need this percentage of that person, this ethnicity, that percentage of that ethnicity, those sorts of things. The second uh, definition of equity is the value of the shares issued by a company, right? Um, now, what's interesting about the second of those two things is that uh, the second definition of equity is actually something that's earned, right? Which is the dichotomy in the first definition, which says everything should be impartial, right? Um, am I the only one that like has recognized this thing, right? That that reality of the word equity that's built in here. 
You're absolutely right. You have to earn your equity. If you are an employee at Oracle or Microsoft, any startup, and as part of your compensation, you're getting stock or stock options. Hi, Bean. How you doing, buddy? Um, he's going to cuddle up. He likes this conversation. <laughs> um, you earned your compensation. You earned your stock equity grant. You weren't just given it because you were part of a DEI chosen group. Now, were you? And this now, is- here, I want to I drill into this. So I have a theory I want to bounce off you guys. You ready? The evil starts roughly 30 years ago at T-Ball. When we stop keeping score. Because it doesn't matter who wins the game. It just matters that we all have a very good time. Okay? That's when the evil starts. Now, do you know where the evil has played out to? So, I oh, is that a, well, you're, that's a stogie you got. I thought maybe you were firing up a bong or something. Okay, well. I bet <laughs> Too early I yet, a, but a stogue's good for it. I bet you I have a pre-roll in here I could fire up if you're going to do that. <laughs> um, so, uh, now, Bob, I know you're a you're a huge fan, lifetime subscriber to that uh, right wing bastion of free speech, the New York Times. Oh yes, yes. And um, so uh, it's surprising to hear this story break in the New York Times just recently that eighty percent of students at Yale get A's. So, so what they've done now is they've taken this this everybody gets a cookie and we don't keep score and DEI. See, it's about equity of outcome, right? That's why everybody gets A's. So now, and and look, I don't know yet, but similar research will be done about Harvard, Penn, MIT, and the rest of the Ivy League. And I'd be shocked if similar results are not shown. So now, now that we know all this, you guys are uh, big time super ding dong executives, right? Sure. You hire people, you fire people. <laughs> and so, what the New York Times has just told us is that the value of an A at Yale is meaningless. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I got to say. Tell that to the student who got the A, and I think you'll get a pretty big argument, right? And the, this, is the, this is the effed up part of it. Because that student, my daughter just graduated from uh, from university. She's getting ready to go to medical school, right? She's doing all the uh, MCAT tests and all those sorts of things. Uh, my daughter graduated with a 4.4 GPA from the Honors College called Barrett. And, uh, and she worked her ass off to get all those A's that she got, right? Uh, so those students are going to argue all day long, right, that they earned every single one of those A's, even though 80% of them got them. Um, but when you start to put in the, you know, the DEI aspect to that stuff, all of the sudden, all of that hard work starts to get washed away from those students. And that's the fucked up part. It is. Uh, I, I know I've probably told each of you guys this story, uh, short story separately, but let me here immortalize it on Christopher's fantastic podcast that uh, there was a baseball player, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20, but he had some great years. Jose Canseco had some terrific years 
for the the athletics. Uh, then he they let him go. It was too expensive. He was bouncing around a little. He got a tryout for one team in spring training, and he didn't show up much uh, for workouts. He didn't do real well. And at the end of spring training, they cut him. And there was a press. He called a press conference because he, his big point was he said, "I didn't know I was going to be evaluated on my performance." <laughs> and uh, it just showed. You know, so he at one time was a good player. So he's always a good player. And he's always going to make a spot. And he always deserves this amount of money. And yeah, the, so the, this this notion that somebody gets into school, you don't want to disappoint the little Nimrods, right? They're 18, 19. And God knows their parents are paying us an astronomical amount of money to come here. And we want them to further donate to our endowment. So I can't give these guys a C. That's exactly right. And you got tenured professors who cannot be fired. And on and on and on down the line. But, you know, guys, uh, uh, reality eventually takes hold of any situation, no matter how absurd and stupid and twisted upside down. And so I have just taken great joy by seeing these stories about these kids, mainly from Harvard, you know, that they, they were they were uh, condemning Israel and condemning it. And, you know, Christopher, your lines, the oppressed and the oppressor. It's the only lens they see things through these days, and you know, free Palestine, all this stuff, and they, you know, condemning this. Well, there's a lot of them that had received job offers that have been rescinded. Oh, you signed that letter? We don't want you on our team. So, uh, they, but the colleges, it's a, it's the funniest thing, right? And they're tax-free endowments, and then they ask them, like, uh, I, I think that the moron from Harvard who was uh, interviewed before Congress, somebody's asking about how many people. How many members of your faculty are of one political persuasion versus another? And it's, you know, 98, 99 to one. She kept saying she didn't know. But a lot of studies have shown this. And they, they're just oblivious to this. It's, it's astonishing. One thing we've learned, it's astonishing to see how high up uh, profoundly unqualified people can rise if the institution itself is screwed up enough. Word. Well, and, and listen, we've seen this with Claudine Gay, of course. Everything's come out about her academic record. Everything has come out that she stole many, many of her ideas from Pro Professor Swain, who is shunned by Harvard. Because yes. guess what, Bob? Professor Swain. <laughs> Although, see, see, this is this is where intersectionality becomes important. You, what you want is you want to identify with more than one of the right groups. Yes. Because the problem with Professor Swain, of course, is, well, yes, she's a black woman, so she's oppressed, doubly, right? But she's a Republican, Bob. Which, she's the wrong kind. No, she's an oppressor, immediately. Yes. She's the wrong kind of black woman. And and, and so here you have <laughs> a, 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 and look, I'm no expert on Ivy League schools, far from it. Um, they wouldn't let me attend. They're very happy to have me come lecture, by the way. <laughs> I've lectured at Harvard, MIT, Stanford, and the like. Many times, I'll have you know, with my no GED from a terrible school that no that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but I digress. Um, the interesting thing that learned people have said about um, uh, Dr. Gay's um, writings is, I think she's had 11 papers, which I'm to understand is, 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 very low production. And um, there's been all these uh, the, these misquotings. That's, I think, what they're calling them. Uh, translation, stealing people's work. Yes. And what I've heard from many 
is that a first-year student at Harvard would be expelled for this. And so now we have situations where everybody at Yale gets an A, where the standard of excellence in academics for a DEI elitist is not only can you have a shitty record as an academic uh, leader in terms of publishing, but you can steal massive amounts of what you've published and that's okay because the group you're in matters more than the content of your character. Maybe if we went back to, uh, to uh, you know, some of Martin Luther King's thoughts on what equality was really, uh, you know, a framework for equality that was basing not on skin color, but on quality of character, uh, as opposed to, you know, the ramblings that have been put out there by, you know, folks there that have been mentioned of, of putting things into a context and that kind of stuff. You know, maybe uh, maybe if we took a little step back and said, right, uh, let's imagine that uh, that there is no difference in uh, in anything, skin color, eye color, sexual orientation, right? Any of those sorts of things. Just pretend like those things aren't there, right? Pretend like culturally we haven't been uh, uh, schooled by media and those sorts of things to believe that those things are there. Um, and you just base stuff on how fucking awesome somebody is, uh, how great their ideas are, how great their mind is, uh, how great they are in, uh, in recognizing brilliance in other people as opposed to brilliance in themselves. Uh, and we'd be in a much different place. We'd be in a significantly different place. But I want to two things I want to mention real quick, Christopher and Bob. Right, the first one is: uh, Do you think the, the the folks who were initially coming up with the premise of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, would have ever imagined that the word elitist would be after that statement? Right, I don't think anybody in their right freaking minds who was thinking about how can we create a more impartial environment where uh, diversity matters and inclusion is something that we strive for and that sort of thing, would have ever have thought that the word elitist would be added to to that uh, acronym, right? It's, it's blasphemous, right, for the people who were initially dreaming this premise. Um, now, and I get I'm, I, I am I am also a state school kid, right? I wasn't at Harvard. I wasn't at Princeton. I wasn't at Yale. I wasn't at any of those sorts of schools. Um, and I also learned a whole bunch of, of ways, you know, learned a whole bunch of shit the hard knocks way, right? Of fucking things up and then trying to come back and, and recover from them. Um, but in my mind, the premise of DEI elitist is is just, it, it doesn't make any sense to me, right? Because the premise is be diverse, be impartial, and uh, uh, and then create an environment of inclusion, right? It, it's just fucking crazy to me. Uh, John, I think the people that you've talked about, Dr. King, you know, others in that area, they they set they set out to have those goals just be widely accepted. It is the people who wanted to adopt it and say, no, 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 I got a gravy train, right? I got this rice bowl I can hop on. I can live off this for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I am going to take those noble ideas and put them into this other category. So, yeah, John, I think you're right. There's two different tracks of people, some who wanted to take this to its ideal and the best expression for the uh, for everybody. And then there's others who've hijacked this into this obscene and, uh, you know, corrupt and soul-crushing type of idea. 
that you cannot have, you cannot meet the standards of this DEI thing unless you take the exact opposite of those words. And that's what they're really all about. It's about exclusion. It's about the massive inequality. And it is about unanimity or, or homogeneity, not diversity. And it's, it's, it's horrendous, this the way they've hijacked this and corrupted it totally from the noble ideas you had, uh, you had just described there. I, I despise this. Uh, and, you know, it, here later in my life, I think it's one of the things that I have the most fear about for my children and grandchildren, the sort of world they grew up in, which is why, Christopher, I'm happy to hear you talk about these, your predictions for 2024 and about how this house of cards, this house of pornographic cards uh, is, is set to come down. I sure hope so. Well, and here's the aha, and I've been doing everything I can to help as many people as possible have this aha. So I was born um, the month after Dr. King was murdered. And so he's loomed large in my life, my whole life. And if you look at the black rights movement, if you look at the women's rights movement, if you look at what also was called the civil rights movement. Of course, these things are intertwined in some ways. Um, black rights movement, civil rights movement, women's rights movement were often lumped together and called the equal rights movement. That's what it was fucking called. And, and it was required. My mother at her first job was legally paid less then the guy doing the exact same job. That was the fucking law. Yep. And women got together with their middle fingers and burned their bras and said, this aggression will not stand, man. And they were right. And what did they demand? What did the women's movement, what did the black rights movement, the civil rights movement, what was the demand? Equal rights. Equal rights. And that's the genius of Dr. King. And you know what? And it's something that needs to be said more often. That was the genius of the women's movement. Look, were there militants and da-da-da-da-da who said horrible things? Sure. But the reality is the women's movement, the black rights movement, the movement for uh, 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 queer people, et cetera, et cetera, used to be called the equal rights movement. And what that meant was we could all stand for it we could yep. all doc, as a little boy dr king's dream could be um mine but where are we now another legendary quote from george orwell all animals are created equal but some animals are more equal than others that's dei so um so as we said i grew up in the bay area and uh, um I, I lived in uh, uh the east bay which is like oakland concord right that sort of area for anybody who doesn't know um i uh i lived uh along the peninsula like burlingame and and those sorts of areas uh and i lived in san jose uh which is a, you know big metro there in the bay area um and uh and my grandparents my mom grew up in san francisco my dad grew up in oakland um, my, uh, mom's father was shot down in world war II. Uh, he was a gunner, uh, and, uh, he was shot down in world war II when my mom was an infant, right? Very young. Uh, and my grandmother, 
um, had to become the breadwinner overnight, right, uh, in the family. Um, so, uh, so my grandma at a time, uh, you know, this is the, the 40s, um, my grandma at a time when women were not enabled to move into management jobs and those sorts of things became a manager of a Woolworth store. Woolworth store in uh, San Francisco, California. Um, she was, uh, to my knowledge, the first female manager uh, within the context of a, a Woolworth store. Um, and, uh, and she did it because she came up with better ideas to track inventory, inventory for the store. In fact, she started a single page piece of paper that today we would call an Excel document right? Uh, where she tallied how much milk was sold, how much Ben Gay was sold, how much of each one of the different things was sold at the store. Uh, she then gave it to her manager, who was uh, a man, uh, gave it to the store manager, said, hey, we're running out of toilet paper. We're running out of Ben Gay. We're running out of these things. She said, oh, that, that's a great way to track these things instead of having the, the person walk around the store and look on the shelf. So then every single checker that was at this World War store started to do the same tally, process of each one of the things. Every night, my grandma would take that list and she would put it into one major list and she'd put it under the manager's door. So the manager knew what to order the next day. That was ingenuity. That was, you know, uh, realizing there was a void that because uh, she got sick of hearing customers yell at her when they were out of Ben Gay or out of toilet paper or any one of the different things. She came up with an idea that fixed a problem. Uh, she then got rewarded for that. Now, she happened to live in one of the most liberal cities, even at that time in the 40s, right, in San Francisco, where women were getting a little bit more opportunity than uh, than maybe in other parts of the, the nation that we live in. Um, but she did that not based on uh, on somebody granting something to her. She did it based on her realizing there was a problem, her fixing the frickin' problem, uh, and her being ended up being rewarded for that problem because she didn't stand for somebody else taking credit for it. She put a flag in the ground and said, this is what we need to do. Um, I, she's one of my heroes, right? Uh, Martin Luther King, one of my heroes, right? You know, other people that we've talked about. Um, but she is a hero to me because what she did was she said, I'm not going to wait for somebody to make it better. I'm going to go make it better myself. Um, and I think there's a lot of people like Helen Susan Nelson in the world out there right now who are doing that same sort of thing that uh, that you know, aren't maybe getting the recognition they deserve, or maybe they are getting the recognition they deserve. And fantastic, right? That's wonderful. But if we if we paid a little bit more attention to folks who are doing that sort of thing, as opposed to your earlier story, Christopher, of every kid on the baseball team getting a trophy, right? And everybody getting an award, maybe maybe stuff would be just a little bit better. Amen. Hallelujah, John. All right, the cloud. Cloud Wars Live. The cloud rankings. What's going on in the cloud, boys? Uh, I got to hand it to the maestro on this one, but I, I might, Bob, throw a little something out there to tee you up a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned something earlier that was a big lesson learned this year. I went down the, you know, the the uh, the pessimistic route, and you went down the optimistic route uh, when Christopher asked what was going on there in 2023. Uh, but you mentioned uh, Mr. Larry Ellison, Mr. Satya Nadella, um, uh, who was part of that conversation as well, because now Microsoft's Oracle's biggest customer, right? And uh, and this is something that I think is. Uh, and this is typical Bob Evans, right, of being able to look around corners and, and tell us what's going to be happening out there. But this is probably one of the most um, 
wonderful things that I've seen happen in the cloud category in a long ass time. Besides the great innovation and all those sorts of things, two organizations that would be considered bitter rivals from day one, right? Um, coming together, focused on a void that needed to be filled for Microsoft in serving their customers. Um, that's a that's a masterful thing. And it's probably one of my favorite things, Bob, that, that you've really been analyzing with, uh, with Cloud Wars and Acceleration Economy. John, thank you for that. It was really, really something. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, I, I think not that the number you put next to you for how many years you've been on earth, it defines anything, but it, it still is worth noting, right? The guy's 80 years old or, or just about 80 and he's not content. He's not settling for stuff. And Christopher Wright, the thing that you have made a worldwide phenomenon, follow your different, be different. Don't do, try to do things a little better, a little less exp- be different. Do it your own way. So, you know, who knows where he was when he's sitting back? <laughs> he said, a bit of rival. They're a lot bigger than where they got a lot of money. I'll probably continue to do pretty well if we just bang heads together. What if I could make him my biggest customer? Huh. How do I do that? Huh. But it, he didn't settle for the old, you know, the same old, let's, let me just, you know, keep pounding my head on this and somehow magically something different might appear. So I think that's what. Also, you know, as we're we're recording this session, it's late December. There's a lot of holiday movies that are shown. I think about that one, <laughs> Miracle on 34th Street, where Gimbals and Macy's get this idea. Oh, I don't have it, but they have it over at May. Go over to Gimbals. And, you know, hey, why don't we try to do good things for the customer? How about that for a new, different sort of idea? So, uh, it's a wild idea, but I think, you know, it's been in the public consciousness for a century, you know, to try things differently. And I think it is going to radiate out to others. Some of the companies that Microsoft sells to, that Oracle sells to, that now are Microsoft users running their Oracle databases through Azure are going to say, you know, maybe I should stop spending so much time and energy radically competing against everybody. And maybe there's places where I can take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we can do some stuff together. But I I think, again, the different way the world's working in this example, the way that it it really, really uh, is going to do some crazy things for the whole cloud industry and the tech industry overall. But I think the biggest thing, Christopher, is don't sit down and try to do the same old crap that you've done for the last five or 10 or 20, 30 years and think you can out efficiency somebody in a world that's changing radically and wildly uh, every day, every week, every month. And so I think that that will be one of the great uh, legacies and lessons of Larry Ellison is, you you know, the, the game is constant. The rules constantly change. The goals change. The score changes. Don't get caught on the sidelines with this. And I think you want to sit there with your thumbs up your ass. That's a choice, right? It is not poor me, my market's slow, this and that. It's a choice you make. Be a competitor or be a sit on your ass or, you know, whichever way you want to look at it. So I, I take great, a great sense of optimism about this. And I think it's going to be one of the world shapers in the next, not just year, but the next five or six years. So now, Bob, you are on, no surprise, one of my favorite topics. And let me loop it back to DEI. And let me loop it back to the horrors going on in the Middle East. So, when human beings fight over scarcity, bad things happen. 
when human beings collaborate to create abundance, literally, miracles happen. And so isn't it interesting that Larry, at 80 years old, considered one of the greatest, and people use this word to describe him, warriors in tech. He, he won a lot of battles, business battles. Has now gotten to a place where he says, well, yeah, maybe there's still a place for that. And of course, there's always a place for head-on competition. However, if it's the primary focus, it's a zero-sum game. It always is. And the biggest irony about Harvard, my understanding is they accept 2,000 people a year. If they understood the difference between good and evil in human nature, they would ask themselves, how can Harvard create abundance? See, in a native digital world, they could teach 200,000 people a year. Nobody has to go to Harvard Square, which is actually a triangle. Never figured that out, but I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Harvard Square is a triangle. <laughs> um, I have a terrible Boston accent, I know. And, and so this is the thing. This is literally the thing, right? One of the reasons I spent my entire life in startups is I like creating a different future right? You might like Elon Musk. You might not like Elon Musk. You might be somewhere in between, but he is the largest value creator on planet earth. Mm -hmm. And even if you think he's a, whatever you think he might be in a negative sense, listen, you got to take your hat off to him. And so this is ultimately the difference. Um, and so it is about coming together to create abundance. And I think more abundance was created in 2023 in the tech space than at any other time in the tech space. I'm curious how you guys react to that. John, can I mention one thing here quickly? Then I'd love to see it. Uh, Chris, when you were talking about the abundance and scarcity, there's uh, a great uh, thinker, writer, Victor Davis Hanson. He talks about it. He's a historian. And it, he refers to this thing of fighting over scarcity as the peasant mentality. And he's not saying that in a pejorative sense or peasant, but he think, you know, throughout human history, he said many people have lived in villages. And in the village, there were a sum total of 10 goats, 15 chickens, and two cows. And that was it. And the peasant mentality was, well, wait a minute. If John gets two and I only have one, that's it's either not fair, he's my enemy because he has more than I do of a set amount of things. And so when we break out of that mentality, uh, you know, it, it changes everything. So I love that. Um, John, what I was going to say here too, along with that is there's so much happened with the cloud. It's become like the, the midwife of the future, right? AI sat around for 65 years and most people never had a chance to do anything with it because it was inaccessible. The cloud is the perfect system. And for so many of these new things, now, guys, AI, the way it's burst onto the scene <laughs> and made everybody's head spin around, you know, crazy, still trying to figure this out. I think 2024, we're going to see this go, uh, you know, way beyond whatever we might have thought because quantum computing brought to you by the cloud is going to make this seem like, you know, a bunch of old, you know, uh, medieval stage tricks. Uh, so John, I think this is, we're going to have a year 
uh, unlike anything we've ever seen. It's going to be fun and, uh, and it's going to be exciting. And I share your optimism, Bob, for, uh, uh, for things into the future. You know, there's, there's a, uh, I'm going to throw three things out there real quick, right? The first one is, uh, I think the level of innovation that AI is enabling from organizations that uh, we all sort of looked at maybe a a year or two ago and said, boy, I wonder what their play is going to be in the metaverse, right? Um, You know, we we, we were having those conversations. Oh, Microsoft's going to spend all this money on Activision. Oh, what is is Workday's play going to be in the metaverse? What is Oracle's play going to be? Well, that shit got tossed away real quick, right? Because it wasn't actually creating more abundance. It was actually creating scarcity, right? You know, Snoop Dogg's involved and all these people are involved in this stuff, right? It created more scarcity. Now everybody is moving towards um, uh, the promise and premise of what AI has the ability to do, which is create more abundance, right? Create faster access to information that can help you make decisions about what movie you see, about what you're doing in your uh, uh, for work, uh, and about where you go on vacation, right? There's all kinds of, of, of um, elements to this thing that are just really going to be fun to see. Um, the other element that I think is kind of cool is, uh, uh, is you're seeing innovation happen from some of those Cloud Wars top 10 companies, but then a whole bunch of others as well, right, that are out there. But one of those companies, Bob uh, and Christopher, that I think is doing some really amazing stuff right now is ServiceNow. Uh, they have, they have kind of come from being this sort of workforce optimization kind of organization to make stuff run a little bit smoother. Uh, and now creating, uh, Bob, you, you know, you're better at this than I do, but now Assist as the platform, uh, which is literally assisting you through all of those processes that run your organization or run your business by applying generative AI to it. It's a very practical void that this organization is just starting to fill out there. And and for my money, right, Bill McDermott, who's the CEO of that company, I think is a rock star, right? I just I think he's a pretty, pretty amazing leader. And, you know, coming from the SAP days to the, to the stuff he's doing over there at ServiceNow, I'm, I'm just super impressed with the level of innovation. Um, so that's another little company besides Oracle and Microsoft that I'd, I'd throw in that mix is doing some pretty neat stuff. Um, the third thing that I would mention on this is uh, around the premise of abundance, right, versus scarcity that, that, that we were chatting about. Um, you have the ability, right, abundance from an intellectual perspective or from an information perspective um, is when you can decentralize that intelligence a lot easier for people to access, right? If you've got abundant access to information uh, uh, and, and true information, right, uh, not, not phony information, um, that actually creates a level of abundance for intellectualism to grow. Um, and, uh, and it's one of the things that Bob and I have really been working on through this, uh, you know, uh, experiment we created, uh, in September of 2021 called acceleration economy, um, which is all based on practitioners who are the analysts, not like, you know, uh, folks who would be, uh, uh, just theoretically looking at the application of technology for a business, but true people that have, uh, been in the driver's seat on the ground floor, in the rolling their sleeves up, actually applying technology to businesses. They're all the analysts. So wait a minute, there. John here. I'm, I'm a little confused. Remember I, I didn't go to school and I drink a lot. So, so is what you're saying that the Gartner model of hiring fired product managers from Oracle and CA to tell you what they think is a dumb idea and getting people who've had 
<laughs> multi-decade careers doing the thing they're advising on is maybe the better idea. Is that, is that, I mean, come on, is that, I, I mean, I want to talk to that failed product manager from uh, Hewlett Packard about my future. A friend of mine taught me the expression to follow your different, right? So as opposed to trying to cut, paste, and repeat what a Gartner, a Forrester, and others have done out there with some of those models that you just talked through, Chris, what we did was we said, hey, we're going to follow our different, which is let's have people who are actual practitioners who have done this stuff uh, help other people understand both the deci- why they made the decisions they made, what some of the tough decisions were they made, and how you can learn from those things, and then how you can apply this stuff to your business as somebody going through it for the first time by connecting with people who have gone through it before. Now, the this is, and I'm I'm hung up on this premise, right, of decentralizing intelligence. If we decentralize more intelligence, you create more um, uh, inclusion. You create more uh, uh, acceptance of diversity, right? Um, uh, you can actually create more equity for yourself, right? To the to the two definitions we talked about before, um, because you mean you the good equity, have, not the evil one. <laughs> The good equity, right? The the, the ability to um, uh, to earn earn more um, uh, wealth for yourself and all those sorts of things that that folks want to have so they can buy things, right? But the point is, uh, if you can make that intelligence more accessible to everybody, and you can have a um, uh, a shorter time to getting smart, right? So that you can accelerate decisions that you need to be able to make. Uh, that's the ability that generative AI has when you when you uh, focus on just getting the intelligence that you know is true. Well, the intelligence that we know is true is from people who are practitioners who have done this stuff before, right? Not somebody who's a failed product manager or those sorts of things. So what Bob and I are doing is hitting the fast forward button on our own side. And we've created something called the Analyst GPT, which is actually codified uh, over 10,000 pieces of intelligence from practitioners, people who have been CEOs, CIOs, CFOs, chief information security officers, and more. And now you can go into Acceleration Economy Analyst GPT, literally ask a question from this trusted source and, uh, and get answers back, all based on the content that we've created with these practitioners, Christopher. I love every second of that. Every second of that. And I, it's also amazing to me how many people are afraid of this. I remember when uh, ChatGPT came out and it had only been, been out for a little bit. And, and, and I had, and I, I, I thought, okay, let's see how much it knows about category design and things along those lines. And, you know, it, it, I, I would say at that point, it was about 50% right in new category design. And it generally kind of had a good idea of what it was. Anyway, then I thought, huh. So I asked it this question. This probably would have been, I don't know, maybe March of 2023 I asked this question. I said, what would Christopher Lockhead's advice be about category design? And it gave me this whole thing. Anyway, I cut and pasted it and I put it on LinkedIn. And I said, ChatGPT just took my job. <laughs> and I was celebrating it. And a lot of people came forward and they were like, oh my God, that's terrible. And how do you feel? And I was like, no, you don't get it. This is fucking awesome. Um, and, and this goes, in my mind, it goes back to um, this abundance, right? And uh, Category Pirates, we wrote a piece uh, early on this year when all this was happening to try to underscore the Luddites are always wrong. And so we made this fable up about the hunter-gatherer father. I think I might have read this on Cloud Wars. 
and 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 his daughter who wanted to be a farmer and the hunter gatherer far, father says well if we do this you know we got all these people who make money foraging and they're and they're not going to have jobs anymore and nobody will buy boots for foraging and glove for for and you're going to destroy foraging and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and here we are <laughs> now on to on to a serious one so if you go okay well history teaches us clearly the luddites are always wrong yes what people always say is well it's different this time mm-hmm. now most of the time i think that's bullshit However, I think it behooves us to pay attention about, you know, will AI actually become more powerful than humans? And will all the horror movies we've always seen happen? You know, this was another big thing that was um, uh, going on at OpenAI was this this fear that the DEI elitist, altruistic douchebags said, no, 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 he's going to take over the world and we got to put the genie back in the bottle. And so um, I ask you, learned gentlemen, is it different this time? Are the fears about AI justified or are these just Luddites being Luddites? I think it's, uh, I think the Luddites are going to be, you know, more spectacularly wrong this time than, than elsewhere. And from, who, who was the first guy, that, that guy who, you know, banged a couple rocks together and started fire, but they, we've got to have a name for that man or woman who did that. Um, but that guy could have said, Hey, I could start a forest fire, you know, cooking uh, meat. Why would you do that? Can't have that. Can't have that. Uh, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers, my favorite team are not having a good year, but their coach likes to say throughout, you know, good times and bad times. He said, we don't live in our fears. When they say, hey, why did you try this? And it didn't work. And he said, well, it didn't work. You know, sometimes it does, sometimes it But we don't live in our fears. And I think coming into 2024 with AI, all these things coming on, and then quantum computing is going to hit pretty big, third quarter, fourth quarter. And what happens then? And you want to see the Luddites come out, you know, screaming and wetting their pants and, oh, my God, you know, turn off all the computers. Uh, I think, Chris, we we have seen nothing yet as far as the – Fear mongering and the you know the world is ending like that guy who's that shithead Ehrlich. Uh, the world was going to run out of food in eighty eight, then it was ninety eight, then it was oh eight, then eight. You know, <laughs> so the these, but the, that's what I say that those people are always listened to, right? When you say, hey, but this time it's going to be different. No, it's it's the, the 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 idiots are always proven to be wrong because they believe in. They, they fail to believe in the creative spirit of human beings because they have none of it themselves. And it's foreign. It's, it's unimaginable. It's, in, it's just completely imperceptible to them. And I just think the greatest things that humans can do is continue to push and explore, make lives better for everybody around the world. Just think what's going to happen with some disease that we always thought, well, that's, that's exactly we'll never what I figure that out. More food, more opportunities for people that now have very few opportunities, better education, um, chances to look at little kids now who are doomed, whether through poverty or disease or lack of education or other uh, pathologies, that they're going to have a much better future. I, I, I don't know why some people are afraid of that. This risks everything. Um, so 
yeah, these this these headphones, I could get a you know a surge of electricity and fry my brain here. So maybe we should outlaw headphones. I may, yeah, what a what a way to live. It isn't living. Uh, so anyway, I'll I'll stop it. I'm very optimistic. Uh, I echo Bob's optimism, and I think there's a couple of things. You know, my second favorite author, next to Christopher Lockhead, is uh, is a guy called Max Tegmark. You guys uh, have you heard of Max Tegmark before? I haven't, John. Please educate me. Wrote a book uh, that I read in 2017 called Life 3.0. Um, uh, recommended to uh, to you both and and uh, folks tuning in here. Um, so it was all about the rise of um, AGI, right? Artificial General Intelligence, and um, uh, and it breaks down uh, a um, uh, the first part of the of the book is um, a uh, a make a made up story, right? It just kind of makes up a story about what artificial general intelligence would mean to the media world, the content world, right? And those sorts of things. Uh, we see these things happening today, right? With artificial intelligence, writing articles and, you know, uh, Apple now spending a whole bunch of money to, uh, to have um, uh, uh, artificial intelligence creating articles and all this. Um, and he takes it from starting to, uh, to write a couple of articles for a blogger um, all the way through to the largest media conglomerate in the entire world. Um, and it tracks the progress of this organization that uh, that has built this thing. Um, now, after this, this, uh, in some cases in 2017, what felt like a little bit of a horrifying story, right, as you're going through it, um, uh, it then goes into, okay, now let me tell you exactly what's happening with artificial intelligence and what the future likely will hold as we move into life 3.0. Um and so many of the things that Max Tegmark wrote in this book we're seeing come true today. Um, and that is because you cannot uh, put a cap on human ingenuity. You couldn't put a cap on my grandma in San Francisco uh, when she became the first manager of a Woolworth store because of her ingenuity, right? You cannot put a cap on human ingenuity. Um, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen whether People want to say it shouldn't happen um, or want to say it should happen. So the best thing that we can do is accept the fact that those things are going to happen and start to realize that the premise of guardrails is a little silly, right? Um, uh, the, the premise of trying to just put guardrails around these things are a little bit silly. What we have to do... I hate to interrupt you, John. Not if I'm the one deciding on the guardrails. Mm-hmm. Well, therein lies the problem, right? Um, you know, uh, that, then you would be a DEI elitist, right? If uh, if you were the one putting the guardrails on there. The, uh, but anyway, I, I don't mean to blather on about this premise, but read that book because it'll help you think through this stuff a little bit. Um, it tells a story in the book um, about how horses probably felt when they first saw the first car drive by. You know, uh, and were those horses sitting there saying, oh, look how cute that little car. Look at that combustible engine. Isn't that thing adorable? We're going to be here forever because we've been here forever, right? We're going to be the ones that take you from point A to point B. We're going to plow your fields. We're going to do all of this stuff for you. Um, In today's world, horses are a beautiful thing, right? They're beautiful creatures. They're incredible animals. Uh, But today they're really used for show and for sport. Right, they're not used the way they were used in the past. Um, human ingenuity took over. Human ingenuity created what we currently have, and that's exactly what's going to happen next as we go down this AI path. Um, if we have 
a little bit more of an open mind um, and uh, and a little bit more hope in each other, then I think we have a pretty tremendous future in front of us. Um, a wise person once told me, John, you got to remember, uh, there's significantly more critics out there than there are artists. So why don't you choose to be an artist? Right? Why don't you choose to be an artist? Because it's a lot harder to be an artist than it is to be a critic. Yeah. Hey, John, Chris, uh, you both talked a lot about Dr. King and all. And I, I just uh, take a second because I wanted to, I knew the broad scope of this uh, quote from him, but it's, it really, uh, it bears reading in full here. And I think it touches on a, many of the things we brought together. But uh, somebody asked, he said, well, he said, Dr. King, you know, this all, your, your words sound great, but he said, my job, I'm a street sweeper. You know, what, what, what should I do? And Dr. King said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as a Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Brilliant. Anything else, gentlemen? I'll leave you with one quote from my grandma who I talked uh, about a lot. Um, and Bob's heard me say this one a whole bunch of times. Um, easy is way better than hard, right? Um, and, uh, and she told me that when I was trying to make cheesy eggies in her uh, flat in San Francisco one day, uh, where I used way too many eggs and way too much cheese and made an entire mess of her, uh, of her kitchen. And she said, you know, John, John, which is what she used to call me, um, uh, you know, easy is way better than hard. And all you had to do was ask me how to make those cheesy eggs. And I would have just told you how to make them. And then you would have learned how to make them. And you would have, you wouldn't have made this huge mess in my kitchen that now you're going to clean up. Uh, and, uh, and those words have stuck with me for a long time, right? Easy is way better than hard. And sometimes ah, I want you to ask for a little bit of help. And of course, the other part of that lesson that I love is if you make a fucking mess, you <laughs> need to clean that shit up. Yes. I spent uh, a good 45 minutes cleaning the, uh, that kitchen that day as a uh, probably six-year-old, uh, seven-year-old. And um, uh, it may have been the cleanest it ever was because my grandma was also watching me like a hawk as I got out a Q-tip to go in between the little you know, nooks and crannies of her, uh, of her stovetop. Anything else, gentlemen? Thank you, my good man. This is this is a pleasure. Uh, your your willingness to tackle big, weighty subjects in a highly intelligent and uh, thought provoking manner with some humor woven in there. Not that you're not taking it seriously, but that is a rare thing, Christopher. And it's why you have become uh, somebody who always, I'm sure, was dying to go to Harvard or Yale, but you didn't get there until they paid you to go there and talk. Pretty sweet. Here, here. Pretty sweet. It always made me smile when I walked onto those campuses <laughs> to give a lecture. I always did. And I always had this little moment, this this little neener nonner in my head to the assholes of my high school who threw me out. I was like, ah, you know what? I should go back and fucking 
buy a building and make him name it after me, you pieces <laughs> of shit. <laughs> well, thanks, them. They set you on the road that put you they did. where you are today. There you go. They did. Uh, getting thrown out of school was a legendary thing. And um, uh, I, 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 I think, I, th I think, uh, um, listen, there's lots of pathways to success. And uh, listen, I appreciate you guys too very much. You're two of the smartest guys I know in our industry. We've known each other for longer than any of us want to talk about. <laughs> uh, Bob, I appreciate you tremendously having me on Cloud Wars all the time. John, I love coming to speak at your events and doing, you know, and I just love consuming your stuff. So thank you, gentlemen. And I hope you come back. I, this would be a fun thing to do on a, you know, on a regular basis. So uh, I hope we can do this again. It'd be Love wonderful, it, Christopher, Christopher. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Here's to 2024. Thanks, John. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Bean. See you guys. See you, Bean. Well, there they are, the legendary Bob Evans and John Siebert. Check them out at accelerationeconomy.com. That's accelerationeconomy.com. And search for Cloud Wars Live on your favorite podcast app, and you'll find what I consider to be a legendary podcast about tech all right we would like to thank you thank you so much for your time and attention it means the world to all of us here our friends at clary can help you drive a breakthrough in revenue because revenue is the most important thing in business <laughs> so check out clary.com and learn how to run revenue our friends at the american wild horse campaign are leading are the leading voice on protecting wild mustangs and burrows Visit AmericanWildHorseCampaign.org to learn more about how you can stop the cruel treatment of some of America's most beautiful and majestic wild animals. WildHorseCampaign.org. And our friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, and they have the Rapid Relaunch Program. So if you, it's time for you to relaunch something legendary... Go to atre.net, A-T-R-E dot net today. All right, I need to tell you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All episodes do contain nuts. And it also contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential outcomes. All rights remain perturbed. Uh, please contact your doctor, lawyer, shaman, yoga instructor, bud tender, bartender, and of course category designer before doing anything about anything you heard today remember everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was and did you know that the average person can't kiss their elbow weird things about the human uh, the human body we are produced and edited by the greatest of all time jason DeFilippo. check out his podcast it's one of my favorites it's how we met uh, i met him because he was um uh producing Jordan Harbinger's podcast, legendary podcast. And by the way, as a side note, Jordan has been doing some extraordinary work ever since the horrors of October 7th, including a recent episode where he has a deep conversation with one of the sons of the founders of Hamas. Check out Jordan Harbinger. And uh, Jason's podcast is called Grumpy Old Geeks, and it's one of my all-time favorites. If you're a little grumpy and you're a little funny, and you're in the tech space, Grumpy Old Geeks, wherever you get legendary podcasts. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. The Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ, do our web development. And Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. 
Our law firm is Whedon Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the win. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm. If you want to do legendary oddcasting, check out squadcast.fm. Uh, don't forget, Leonard Cohen was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Sam Bankman Fraud. Sorry, Sammy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.